Welcome back, everybody. This is Random Trek Movie Review, and Matt and I are halfway through J.J. Abrams' 2009 Star Trek. Uh, Matt, are you uh, excited to be back? Uh, excited to be podcasting, but not so much excited about this this movie. Uh, <laughs> the first half wasn't, wasn't that great, and uh, I don't think it's going to get much better, but I guess you'll have to continue listening to find out. Yeah, we kind of left on a little bit of a cliffhanger, uh, or a drill hanger, I suppose, because we had stopped right at the point <laughs> where uh, the drill was burrowing itself into Vulcan and Kirk and... Sulu had gone down to to stop it. Do you want to just jump right into it and get back to where we were at? Yeah, let's just let's just dive dive right in from orbit. <laughs> Indeed. Now, one of the things that I had to kind of clue in when I was looking at my notes, and then I went and I checked online, and then I went back and I uh, rewatched, is that yeah? So this is Vulcan that they're drilling into. Yes. Okay. So. In my mind, for some reason, I remember Romulus getting blown up, but I had forgotten that they blow up Vulcan as well. Because this is kind of the two two of the biggest planets in the Star Trek universe, and they're both destroyed in this movie. So uh, that I kind of had to just get over first and, and, and to kind of accept that. But then I started thinking, and I know that you are kind of a geology guy, and then the whole thing kind of started, a lot of it started falling apart. So they're going to drill into the core of this planet and they're going to drop the red matter in so that the black hole gets created and sucks it all in. Now, as far as I remember from my kind of studies and things like that, wouldn't it be really difficult to drill into the center of a planet? Um, Because like once you get to the center, there's like all the magma and it's like liquid. Like you wouldn't be able to actually drill into the liquid, would you? Like wouldn't it keep sealing up as you were trying to drill? Well, I, I mean, I'm not an expert geologist uh, to that level. I don't know. that It was kind of a weird theory that, like, if you had this high enough power drill that you could actually drill all the way to the core of the planet. I mean, I, I guess I wasn't really thinking of that because there were other things that were going on that were just distracting me so much because they were so bad <laughs> that I wasn't really thinking as far as, like, is the science checking out here? Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things. Yeah, you, you make a great point. Like, number one, if you've got a drill that can drill into the planet that deep, do you really need the red matter? Because wouldn't, like, if you drilled anything halfway through, wouldn't it just crack in half? Uh, poten- potentially, yes. The second thing is, is that if one drop of this stuff creates a black hole, couldn't you just dump it right beside the planet and have the planet get sucked into the black hole from... You know what I mean? Like, do you really need to do this whole elaborate thing where you drill into it? Uh, no, I, I know enough about, like, physics to know that black holes are certainly powerful enough to suck in an entire planet if you, like, dropped a black hole or something that creates a black hole, like, right next to it. So, yeah, this was just this was just extra, like, dramatic stuff that didn't really actually matter. I think that they think that it was cooler to show the planet getting sucked up from the inside. So then they were thinking, like, well, what would make it, like, collapse in on itself? And then they thought, well, what about a black hole? What if we had a thing that made a black hole? 
well, then we need to drill to the bottom to get the black hole material to the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like that line of thinking is, is kind of my thought on it. So as we've been talking about throughout the, the review here in the previous podcast, it was just to look cool. It didn't really actually have any substance to it. Yeah, and I, I guess that's kind of the, the whole movie in a sense. It's kind of like you're not supposed to be thinking about this. You're not supposed to be thinking at all. You're just supposed to be, you know, jamming popcorn down your throat and going, wow, like cool fight scene, cool backflip, cool drill, cool explosion, I guess is what it comes down to. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think that's kind of how I would sum up the movie. Uh, one thing I tell people often when they ask me about this movie or the the J.J. Abrams movies in general is they're like not bad if you just feel like turning your brain off and watching a movie. Yeah, and I mean, I guess there's so many different things that you could watch where that would fit the bill, right? Like the Fast and the Furious movies and the Marvel movies and a lot of things where it's just kind of like, oh yeah, you're just watching it for the sake of it. Star Trek was always a little bit better than that. There's always kind of a message or a moral or something meaty at the core of it. This time it really just kind of feels like, and now this one's going to blow up and this is going to shoot this and this is going to attack that but there's not really a lot to it almost everything that we get is kind of just screamed at over an action scene or explained in kind of like gritty tough talk and we don't get a lot of really good meat uh really which is kind of strange because this is the movie that they said was based off of wrath of Khan, which is one of the you know one of the biggest greatest media star trek movies that they ever made so i don't really see it in that in that sense no definitely not it's uh it's a lot of flash and and little substance and i feel like one of the other things that they almost seem like they're doing on purpose is that they are actively changing a lot of the things that we know so well about uh the star trek universe so when they are destroying the planet spock realizes oh my goodness they're going to destroy the planet so he beams down and he's going to save the the elders so the elders have stowed themselves in vasquez rocks in a uh, you know <laughs> impenetrable impossible to beam out uh, area so he beams down and he's going to save them the crazy thing about this is that there was no warning so i mean are we just to assume that every vulcan save the five or six that escaped and the ones that are on other ships, they're all dead. I believe that's... Well, when once it would sort of all die down, didn't Spock say something along the lines of, like, I'm now a part of an endangered species and there's only, like, 10,000 Vulcans left? Something like that, yeah. This, this was the whole thing that, uh, that I was, like, distracted by. Like, why in the world? Like, they're in the middle of this humongous crisis. Spock is supposed to be in command and he just like run just leaves runs to the transporter room and he's like yeah I'm just gonna beam down to this planet that is like in the midst of being destroyed like doesn't like and no one was like uh wait a minute you shouldn't be doing that uh you're in command like where are you going like no one thought like to stop him the whole that whole scene is very well actually I kind of feel like this entire section of the movie and almost the second half of the movie it dumbs down to basically a lot of screaming Lots of sirens and lots of stuff happening. But it's really hard to kind of follow and it's not overly interesting, you know? Like, oh, he's going to blow the planet up. Oh, we got to save the elders and he beams down. And I think it's supposed to be 
a hard-hitting emotional thing when Amanda uh, Grayson gets killed. So, like, they're going to beam everybody, but it's not Chekhov running the magical beam up. So, of course, when she's slightly near the edge, she gets disintegrated, I guess, uh, or falls over the side or whatever it is. So I think we're supposed to, to feel like this real emotional punch. But, I mean, like, I'm laughing through this, man. This is so cheesy. And there's even the old, the uh, the one guy goes to run away and the Vulcan elder statue, like, falls on him. Like, that's out of a cartoon. That is Bugs Bunny and Tweety. Yeah, this whole scene was uh, pretty laughable. Um, it was, like, super cliche. Spock runs in, and he's like, hurry, hurry, we have to get out of here. And the cave, like, slowly starts, like, collapsing around them. You mentioned the one guy, like, the statue, like, falls on him and, like, like smushes him. They're running through the caves. They're trying to, like, beat the, you know, cave in and all this. And then they're all, like, standing right at the edge of a cliff. Like how <laughs> of course. stereotypical and, and cliche is this? And of course, you know, one of them like is standing there waiting and the, the, the cliff below them like collapses. And, and of course they don't make it like, it's just so, it's so um, cookie cutter. It's so like, by, I mean, we use the term by the numbers a lot on this podcast. It was just so predictable. And it was so like, I watched it and I'm just like, Oh my God, like, like put some imagination into this. Like it was just, so cookie cutter did you get an emotional punch when the beloved character amanda was killed (laughs) well not no not really because you could see it coming a mile away she's standing like on the edge of the cliff and she like gives him that like look you know just before the thing collapses beneath her like uh, this whole thing like it was this whole scene was just so so cliche i mean the whole movie in a in a certain sense feels a bit rushed they rush um, yeah. from one thing to another to another to another uh, because this is interspliced with the Nero Pike scene. So uh, Pike is now on Nero's ship and he's basically getting tortured. And we get a lot of the like the plot, I want to say, or the backstory here, essentially in kind of Nero's long diatribe. You didn't read the tie-in pre stuff comics or novels or anything like that right no how much of this backstory did you get then because i'm kind of curious i read the comic and not that long ago um and so i'm kind of wondering how much of this you actually were able to absorb because it's just thrown at you like baloney against the wall i wrote down very little from it um basically i just wrote that like nero just was blinded by his need for revenge and do you know why he was seeking for revenge well yeah because he like blamed spock for not being able to stop the supernova that blew up romulus and so he was just like in this blind rage uh that he wanted revenge on spock specifically and then for some reason he just decided oh you know spock uh, it's not good enough to get back at spock i'm gonna just destroy every planet in the whole federation so (laughs) he just like goes completely off the handle yeah, so um, in the comic, they go a little bit deeper because I think like Nero is actually part of the people that they talk to in order to kind of help. That's how he has that huge drill. So it's kind of like it's Picard and Data and Spock and like a bunch of Federation people. And they go to Romulus and they're going to essentially help them figure it out. And the one of the reasons, I guess, why Nero is so enraged is because he left his wife on Romulus 
and his kids and everything. And Federation promised them that they were going to be able to stop it from occurring. And they promised them that, you know, Spock was going to lead this thing in with the ship and it was all going to work out perfectly fine. And so I think that he was... He put a little bit too much faith in the Federation, and then when it when it all goes awry and his wife gets killed, he figures that it's not good enough just to get back at Spock, but he's actually going to destroy every planet in the Federation um, with this big ship. That's why he has so much of the red matter is because he started with Vulcan because that was where Spock was from, but then he's going to go to Earth and he was going to go to all the other places as well. Gee, where have we seen, like, ridiculously high stakes before? Like, this is such an <laughs> odd concept for, you know, modern Star Trek. I don't know. I don't know where they got that idea from. Interestingly enough, kind of talking about stakes and, and talking about this entire plot line, this is also, in a weird way, the beginning of the Picard stuff that we just got for Picard series, season one. And uh, did you happen to listen to... Uh, last best hope the review that i just did a couple weeks back uh, actually i didn't get a, around to it <laughs> okay but you've read that you've read that book right i've read the book yes so did you remember there's like a maybe a paragraph maybe half a paragraph where picard and spock actually have a conversation i do seem to remember that yes yeah so essentially in the novel last best hope which is kind of the lead into the new picard series there's maybe a paragraph where Spock is on Romulus and he basically phones up Picard and says, Hey, I'm leaving Romulus. Uh, you know, I have to go and do something. So in a weird way, it's almost like they are writing this movie out of the canon, or at least that's how I felt. It was kind of one of those things where the whole red matter and Spock going back in time or going to an alternate universe or whatever the case may be. It was like they were actively downplaying it. Like, yeah, let's just kind of forget that that whole thing happened. Is that how you felt when you looked at it? Yeah, it was a little odd that the red matter and all that trying to avert supernova was never really mentioned in Picard because I feel like that would be kind of an important thing that would somehow come up. Yeah, well, that was the alternative plan, right? Like, they were going to try to evacuate everybody, but the main plan was to use the red matter to absorb all of the explosion to so it would mitigate a lot of the damage. So it's, it, it, is, it, it really feels like a rewriting in my mind anyway. I kind of feel like they were almost trying to distance themselves from the whole Kelvin universe. Well, that's probably not a bad idea because uh, this is a little bit zany as far as uh, Star Trek goes. <laughs> so back to the uh, so back to the the plot here. Um, Pike tells Nero that Romulus is still there in this particular timeline, right? Because remember, this is something that happens in the future. This happens during kind of Picard era, but then this is the young Kirk and young Spock era. He tells Nero, you know, Romulus is fine. You should, you know, just like go and live there or what have you. So it's kind of yeah, there's a lot of stuff that happens in this whole Nero ship section with Pike. Um, and I feel like without that comic, you really wouldn't be able to kind of understand what was going on. And based on your reply, I kind of feel like that affirms what I thought. In the sense that if you didn't read the pre-material, this guy just seems like he's he's on a revenge mission. But you don't really know why. Absolutely. Yeah, like it was... You get kind of a vague idea of why he's so worked up, but you really don't have a lot of the specifics because, like you said, this whole you, you get all that stuff in about thirty seconds, and it's like you know how do you absorb it all that quickly? 
And I mean, how much detail can Nero go into in 30 seconds? Yeah, do you think that maybe they should have done like a flashback to the prime timeline here where they showed all of this stuff? Or do you think that they maybe should have just left it in the precursor material and it was a little bit more ambiguous? Because I'm one of those people, I don't really think it's fair to make people buy a $30 comic just so that you can understand the plot of a movie that you spent 16 bucks or 20 bucks on. Yeah, I think you're right that you can't you have to treat a movie as a standalone entity. I don't think it's reasonable to say, "Okay, you have to go out and read this series of comics and this graphic novel and whatnot before you go see this movie." Yeah, and I feel like the stuff that they do add, it's not much, but at least it makes this part make sense. All right, Matt. Now we are going to get into the section of the movie that I dislike the most uh this is the part that i think kind of goes against a lot of our preconceived notions and our beloved characters spock wants to join the fleet i believe that that was maybe what pike had recommended doing not 100 percent sure he thinks that maybe logically it makes the most sense uh kirk wants to go after nero and to rescue captain pike uh this whole thing so uh Spock nerve pinches Kirk. He puts him on an escape pod and he dumps him onto a frozen ice planet slash moon after they have this little argument. Now, the thing that I have written here is the Kirk-Spock relationship is garbage because (laughs) I don't think that the people that wrote this movie, the people that directed this movie, the people that acted in this movie, the people that consulted on this movie really truly get the kirk spock magic from the original series uh i think that they just looked at like a youtube uh video of you know kirk and spock bickering and they mashed that into this movie now you've watched a lot more original series than me though so what is your thoughts on the kirk spock relationship especially right here in this part of the movie i don't even know where where to start it like it's completely off Like, I don't remember ever in the original series seeing Kirk and Spock have this tense argument and then, like, why is Spock firing him, like, in an escape pod off the ship? Like, don't they have a brig on the Enterprise in the Kelvin universe? Like, like this doesn't make any sense to me at all. But I think he was just going to try to kill him, basically, is what it is, isn't it? Like, he, there's no way that he could have survived on that ice planet with, the, like, the monsters and stuff on it. So, like, I think that we're supposed to believe that he was just trying to kill him. Well, that's a, a tremendous departure from uh, <laughs> the how Spock would typically, res- the Spock that we know would typically respond in a situation like that. Like, that's just outlandish. Like, where is that, like, where did they get that from? Uh, so this is my theory on this, okay? So do you remember in the episode Space Seed when Kirk took uh, all the crew of the Botany Bay and he, like, marooned them on that planet? Yep. And then we later find out in Wrath of Khan that, like, some sort of environmental thing happened and it made it, like, so inhospitable that it was, like, almost unbearable to live on? Yep. So I think that they maybe just watched Wrath of Khan and they were trying to do like an homage thing where Spock puts Kirk on the inhabitable planet 
and they didn't really understand that that was kind of like by mistake or something. Like, I think that they were trying to do something similar to what we saw in Wrath of Khan, but they kind of messed up the whole rationale for it. What do you think of that theory? That's a stretch. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Would you would you put it past this writing crew? No, probably not. <laughs> but like, th- like this whole thing just makes no sense. Like we're going to fire him off in, a, in an escape pod onto the ice planet Hoth, which is, you know, inhabited <laughs> by these, these lethal, deadly creatures that come from this, the Star Wars episode one. Um, like, ugh. like I, 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 when I watched this scene, this section, I just like, I wrote down a number of questions and at the end of it, I just wrote, what is this? <laughs> well, here, hit me up with some of your questions and maybe I'll try to answer them. Okay. So uh, we already mentioned like they launch him out of an escape pod on some planet question mark. Yeah. I, I don't know the reason. My guess is, is they're trying to do like, remember in Wrath of Khan when Khan was on the maroon planet. That was my thought. Okay. Then I write Ice Planet Hoth, and then I wrote Chased by a Wampa, question mark. Yeah, well, this is a bit bigger than a Wampa, and a bit more, like, uh, again, like, the zany level is cranked up. Does it matter, though? It does, though, because I feel like in Empire Strikes Back, when you watched that as a kid, didn't you feel like the Wampa was actually kind of scary? Yes. Okay, and it was kind of like one of those things where they didn't really show the whole thing. Like, you just saw the claw knocking out Luke. You saw Luke getting dragged. And then you saw him kind of in the background. I think with a special edition, they added a couple more things. But it was, like, kind of scary. And it was kind of realistic because they used a real guy in a suit. And it looked really good. And then when Luke was able to fight him off and run off, you're like, oh, thank God that he survived. Every single thing about this this one is just like cheesy, laughable, way over the top. This is like out of a video game, or not even a good video game, like a really crappy, you know, you go to your cousin's house and they have a video game that you never heard of and it's just like the controls are terrible and the graphics are terrible. Like that's this game. I know what they're trying to do, but this is nowhere near as good as the Wampa thing. No, but it's... Yeah, you're right. I mean, I guess the Wampa was a little bit more realistic and therefore it was a little bit more scary. It wasn't like sort of a almost like a cartoon looking thing. Like this thing is like a giant insect. It's got a million legs. It like smashes out of the ice and it chases them. And even though it's 10 times bigger, it can't catch him on foot. <laughs> like nothing about this is good. Every single thing is horrible. Oh, well, you're you're not I'm not going to disagree. It was a uh, pretty pretty difficult to watch through it and not laugh <laughs> okay well hit me up some more questions oh those are that's it yeah well you're probably missing the biggest question and possibly the biggest plot contrivance in like movie history so the ice planet that they happen to have dumped him on and then where he's getting chased down with this big monster he's saved by none other than drum roll but da 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 Leonard Nimoy Old Spock, who happens to live on this ice planet or moon or whatever it is, he scares it away with like a big fire stick. I've got a lot of questions for you, actually, to kind of just flip it around. (laughs) Um, How close was this planet to Vulcan that uh, Spock was able to watch the supernova destroy, or not the supernova, the red matter destroy the planet? 
Uh, I wrote in my notes, there is no way Spock could see the implosion of Vulcan from another planet. It is just simply not possible. Also, if it was a moon of Vulcan, and somehow you could see it by happenstance, wouldn't it also have, like, lost its orbit or been sucked into the black hole? Almost certainly. Um, am I the only one that cares about this stuff? <laughs> no, I, you know what, I, I mean, I'm certainly not a pro-astrophysicist, but I was certainly thinking about those same things. Like, it just, it made no sense. Like, even... Like, if you think about it, even just in very high-level terms, like, how, like if there was, like, a, an explosion on the moon, per se, right? Unless it's, like, the middle of the night, like, are we going to see anything? No, probably not. No, probably not. I mean, if you destroyed the moon, though, you'd see it. You, Yeah, you probably would. Right. You... But think about how close the moon is, and this is supposed to be, like, some completely other planet. Yeah, like, do you think that Spock checked to make sure that this was, like, an M-class planet slash moon? Do you think that they checked the weather conditions? Do you think that they thought it through at all? Or is this just like, hey, you shouldn't be talking, you should be eating popcorn, your mouth should be full, <laughs> and your brain should be off? I would say that based on how Spock vengeful spock had in this movie was i bet he didn't check any of that stuff he just was like look a planet let's just fire him out of the ship in a escape pod the other thing that is really strange is that if like how many days do you think leonard nimoy was on set for this movie if i were to guess i would say maybe like three or four at the most right he really didn't have that many scenes because I'm a little bit surprised, um, Leonard Nimoy, I mean, maybe more so in his younger years, but like even up until his death, he always seemed very protective of the Spock character. And there's a lot of stories, and we both read in that 50 Years of Trek book, there were a lot of times where they wanted him to do something, and he'd say, no, listen, this is the way the character is. And so you, you can't do that. You know, Spock doesn't shoot a guy in cold blood or Spock wouldn't say that to a woman or whatever the case may be. And I kind of have a hard time believing that Leonard Nimoy flipped through this script and saw what they did to the Spock character and then was like, yeah, yeah, sure. That sounds good. I'll be in that. There's a, like, it just seems so different from what he, what he did and so different from what we're used to. Oh yeah. Like I was going to save this for the, you know, character section, but I, I... This is not the Spock that I am familiar with uh, in this movie. Not even close. Yeah, and I think that one of the saddest things now especially is is that because we have the Star Trek Discovery Spock as well, like from my own personal opinion, I actually think we have more bad Spocks than good. Uh, pretty close, yeah. Really? Like if you think about it, we've got two bads and one good. Well... See, my feeling with Ethan Peck and Discovery is that once you get past the insanity stuff, he, I thought he actually was pretty good. Okay. Well, so you would maybe say that you had a good, a medium, and a bad. I, I would say a good, a bad, and one that had moments of bad written in for him. <laughs> okay. So you think the performance is good, though? I actually quite liked Ethan Peck's uh, like interpretation of Spock. I, I mean, if you look at him in the... I, I know you're going to like cringe here for a moment but if you look at how he is in that short treks q a <laughs> like yes the yes the short trek is not like it's not very good i didn't really like it that much but i if you look at how he plays spock in that because he's like straight spock there's none of this weird like insanity stuff right i, I think it's actually his his portrayal of spock is actually pretty decent 
I might have to go back and revisit that one because I remember watching that and it being one of the most cringiest things I've ever seen. But maybe I need fresh eyes to kind of go back and watch it. No, I, I still would say that the short itself is not very, like, it's really cheeseball. Like, the concept of, like, let's trap these two people in turbo lift for six minutes and see what happens. Right. But, I mean, if you if you think about how he you know, does the lines and how his his voice is, you know, I, I think it's not bad. If you wanted somebody to see their home planet get blown up, wouldn't you just keep them on the ship? Like, again, going, I don't want to compare it too much to Star Wars, but if you think about Princess Leia being forced to watch Alderaan get destroyed, isn't that way more powerful than putting the person on a moon that's all cold and they have to kind of watch it? Like, what if it had been cloudy that day? <laughs> you wouldn't have seen it. Wait, we have to sh- we have to hold on the red matter. There are there's cloud cover <laughs> over uh, Spock's little hut on the ice planet. Just give it give, just give it a half an hour while it blows over. <laughs> but no, it's true though, isn't it? Like you wouldn't see it if it was cloudy. No, it was totally a harebrained idea to be like, I'm just gonna maroon him on this planet and and hope that he actually gets to seize it. Versus like. Let's put him on the bridge. Let's like tie him to a chair, wedge his eyes open out the window. Make him watch it. What if he had been sleeping or, or inside or any, like all these things are just so, like this is what I'm thinking about. And this is like, this is the point where the movie is starting to like grind on me. Because now they're starting to wreck a lot of the characters. Once you bring in old Leonard Nimoy and old Spock, it's kind of like soiling that character. Just the fact that he's in this garbage heap and so it's like this is really starting to to get under my skin a little bit in terms of like how the movie is going but anyway spock old spock explains the second half of the tie-in comic that i read so um weirdly though this is this one we get a throwback like we actually get to see in the prime universe him in the jellyfish ship we see him with the red matter and everything and how he gets sucked in and how you know the george kirk stuff from the beginning like uh, spock shows up there even though it was you know only a few minutes but by that token i guess spock's been living in this universe for like what 25 30 years i think that's correct yep one thing i did write and it kind of goes towards how you're saying like they're you know ruining the characters i wrote down that i thought leonard nimoy was pretty good in this even though the lines were terrible yeah i was i wasn't particularly surprised at how he was acting in this but i mean the, you know like we said the, the the dialogue and the lines and the story is just awful i thought that jellyfish ship was just like an abomination to <laughs> like it looked like something straight out of you know star wars return of the clones or whatever it was no, no. Remember there was the one in Phantom Menace when they went under the water? They had a ship that literally looked just like this. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Like, it was just awful. It had that, like, spinning section, which you never have seen in Star Trek before. It made that, like, really weird kind of high-pitched whirring noise that you never have heard in Star Trek. It's like, come on. Like, like can you not just, like, look, watch, like, one episode which has a, an alien ship and... and you know be like okay that's what alien ships are like they're not these like weird spinning odd looking weird sounding jellyfish things it was just oh it was just so and i mean that's like a thing that like that's a distracting thing that shouldn't be distracting you from what's actually happening 
Like, it was just that bad. Well, I mean, I'm not against a ship that looks like that if it's, like, underwater. Because then it would be, like, a propeller. So, I mean, even that Episode 1 ship, I'm not really against it. Because if you're underwater, that would maybe act as, like, a propeller. But in space, what would be the benefit of it spinning? Even if it was, like, from some crazy, weird, exotic alien race that we've never seen or heard of before. But, like, where did he get it? Like, is that, like, a Vulcan ship? Is it a Romulan ship? Like, they don't look and sound like that. Yeah, you know, maybe they should have just had a ship with a saucer and the saucer section could have spun, like, the inner part of it. Oh, dear Lord. (laughs) If you thought that Spock, being in a cave... And Kirk, young Kirk, getting sent down and them bumping into each other was the biggest plot contrivance in a movie. You would be wrong because actually uh, Montgomery Scott being stationed on the same ice moon planet and working on a uh, what is this like a ship at warp beaming technology has to be the most convenient, uh, you know, tic-tac-toe kind of writing I have ever seen. And I'm a James Bond movie fan, which is like, they're, they're, they're infamous for just going A, B, C, D. This is like next level. Are you sure that Starfleet Outpost wasn't like an insane asylum? Because like when they <laughs> open that like creaking, like giant metal door and it opens up and there's like, it looks like the walls at one time were like painted white. But because over time, it's just kind of like built up some like a little bit of grime. And it just, it looked like, I was like expecting them to walk in and it's like, oh, uh, we've entered Arkham Asylum. Like, here's the Joker and the Riddler. Like, come on, what was that? Like, that, like, is is that what typical Starfleet outposts look like in the Kelvin universe? Uh, I guess so. I, I've started at this point in the movie when they walked in and it was Montgomery Scott. I had kind of forgotten that he was not even in it yet. And when they walked in and he's like, "It's me, Montgomery Scott." I was, I thought I was in an insane asylum. <laughs> like this is like a, you know taking bad drugs and then, you know, imagining that this stuff, like there's no way that there could be a team of writers and a bunch of people all sit in a room and they could think this is such a great idea. And you know what? Just to make it even better, he'll have like this weird friend who's a little alien guy and he'll run around and be part of it as well. Like I just hate all of this stuff so, so much. Like I actually started kind of looking at my phone during this part and I forced myself to put it down and rewind it because I was having a really hard time watching this stuff. Yeah, it was pretty bad. And why do they wait until now to introduce Montgomery Scott? I mean, we're like two thirds of the way through the movie. He's like one of the main characters. They sort of, I get that they wrote themselves into this box and they had no other way of escaping from it. Isn't this sort of an indication when you get to this point, it's like, oh, we need to have Montgomery Scott turn up on this Starfleet outpost. Like, how is that going to work? Oh, I know. We just won't have him in the movie until then. Like, isn't that kind of an indication that, okay, maybe your, like, story here and your plot is not really working? I would make the argument that they probably wrote the movie where Kirk and Spock met in the cave, and then they were like, oh, crap. How are they going to get off of there? And now the ship is, like, flown away. So then they were like, well, somebody will just beam them at, at warp. Well, who could do that? Well, this is where we'll introduce Montgomery Scott. And it's like that line of thinking, which when you think about it that way, you're like, oh, perfect. It solves the problem. But then when you actually stop and think that Spock and Kirk are living in a cave and then they just happen to go walking and find like a random outpost and it just happens to be 
the most famous engineer in Starfleet history who's like underappreciated and working on like pulling up ice core samples or whatever the hell. It's just like, ugh. And then, of course, he's working in his spare time on trans warp beaming, which I, you know I hate. They've always established. Number one, you can't beam at warp. Number two, you can't beam when the shield's up. They've established those rules for so long. But, of course, you know, Montgomery Scott in the pre-Kirk era knows how to do it. But didn't, didn't Spock end up being the one who, like, gave him the equation to do it? Like, he just happened to, like, have that stored away in his Vulcan memory banks? Wasn't it like Scotty was like, he was like stumped on part of it or something? And Spock's like, well, it's a good thing that I have uh, memorized your transwarp equation. And then suddenly they're like able to do it. But they didn't have transwarp when they did the, like when they did Picard, when they did uh, TNG, (laughs) when they did Voyager. They never had that technology. Oh, really? Well, I guess it would have been helpful for the writers to have known that. (laughs) Yeah, really. oh man this is gonna be we got we still got a lot of movie here left so um they beam to the enterprise using the trans warp beam and of course montgomery scott gets beamed into like the water coolant part of the engine room for reasons i don't i hated that and then kirk and old spock like run up to the bridge and young spock kind of does like the whoa 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 what like how did you get back uh, what are your thoughts on this whole section? The whole beaming into the water pipes. Like, why? Like, I don't know why they have giant pipes with water in them on a starship to begin with. I thought it was just like a cheap laugh. It was just like a. It's like, oh, we're at two hours and one minute. We want to get to two hours and five minutes. Like, what can we just like <laughs> throw in that'll be funny and exciting? And it's like, oh, how about if Scotty, like, be, like and I'm sure they had like a hundred ideas or ten ideas. And one of them, I guess, was like, oh, like, what's, what if Scotty, like, beams into the water coolant pipes or whatever, and Kirk's got to get him out of there? Like, I don't know, is that what, like, that, that's what it felt like to me, because otherwise there was really no point to it. I think that they were kind of thinking maybe it had been, like, it's crazy to think that they would be saying, well, this movie's getting a bit serious, let's lighten it up with a little bit of (laughs) zaniness. But I, I kind of get that sense that, that maybe that's what it is, or like, I don't know. There's there's like a, I don't know, a really pessimistic part of me that actually thinks that maybe they were sitting around being like, well, you know what? Like, how can we ruin the Montgomery Scott character as well? You know, like we've already ruined all the others. So maybe we should, you know, put him in a water pipe and he can sloosh around like it's Mount Rushmore, uh, you know, Simpsons episode. Uh, like he's a big water slide. Like I, that whole thing is just so dumb. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bad. Did you... Now, I'm kind of skipping a little bit, but when Spock, like, beat the pulp out of Kirk, did you notice all the lens flares when yeah. they're doing that scene? So this is, yeah, this is the <laughs> next part. So Kirk goes in and he goats Spock into attacking him. I guess because he wants to be the captain and he knows that if Spock beats him up, then it's then he's going to lose commission and all the other people on the ship are going to just let Kirk do it yeah god this is stupid this does not fit with what we think of when we think of spock this doesn't fit with what we think of all the other characters it's again that kind of thinking where you just go well you know what we need to make kirk the captain so how can we make spock not the captain well he'll step down and kirk will step in and nobody will say a boo about it it'll just 
go seamlessly. Spock will have like his 12th emotional outburst in the movie and that'll be the end of it. I mean, that's essentially what it was. Yeah, I think that I've said it back when we talked about Ethan Peck in Star Trek Discovery, but I don't know that an actor or a writer really can write for Spock anymore. It's such a nuanced thing. And the inability to have any kind of range where you get angry or sad or whatever, they just can't do it. They, they can't have a character with no emotion. They just don't know what to do with it. So every time I see this, I like feel like writing a fan letter to Jolene Blaylock and be like, hey, you know what? You did an awesome job when you actually played a Vulcan straight up and you didn't have any episodes where you went nuts or you got all super emotional or anything you just stuck to the fact that nope it's a vulcan this is the way that it's done because i don't think that they can do it nowadays i really don't well it's, it's a very difficult thing there's no doubt about that um, both to write it and to act it i mean i think there is still room for it but i i don't think it maybe makes for the greatest storytelling for a character to be completely devoid of emotions so i i think maybe they just choose to try to find really cheeseball ways of getting around it but to me it's almost like uh it's almost like the straight character in a comedy right like everyone else plays off of that character that's neutral because they are always the consistent level-headedness and then everyone else plays to that or acts off that like that's kind of the whole gimmick and I think that when you make Spock have these outbursts, it actually kind of hurts everyone else as well. I, I thought these outbursts were just ridiculous. And they were so over the top. Like, it was just so, it was so much. Like, it wasn't like he sort of, like, smirked because someone said something funny or, you know, he maybe, like, had a, like, snappy line or something because someone said something that was, like, insulting. It was always like he just went completely off the handle. Well, but I mean, even the relationship with Uhura, like all of it doesn't make any sense. Like this doesn't fit with what we know or what we think. No, exactly. Yeah, it was very, very disorienting. And I mean, at the end of the day, this plot is literally like something that little kids would make up on the playground. And then he blew the planet up and then he kicked him off the ship. But then he beamed back on. Then he had a big fight. Then Kirk was the captain. Then this happened, then that happened. Like, it's just, everything is just going at such a breakneck speed. They're expecting us to just not really think about it long enough to realize how stupid it all is. Well, maybe that was their, like, whole strategy about the whole thing. <laughs> well, Spock resigns, and uh, he goes down, has a little heart-to-heart -heart with Sarek, but then the master of everything, uh, Chekhov, figures out that they can get nice and close to Nero's ship without any detection so i'm not they don't explain how they don't even give us like the voyager era like techno babbly kind of stuff he just straight up says i can do it i can do it <laughs> it's like his catch catchphrase in this movie yeah did you notice that they started dropping a lot of star trek uh famous lines you know uh i'm not a i'm not a I'm a doctor, damn it, not a this, and uh, beam me up, Scotty, and all the lines that are like crammed into the back half of this movie, I felt. He figures out, you know what, we can get close enough that we can beam them on, and so Spock and Kirk make up like it's the last five minutes of a Save by the Bell episode, and they're going to beam over and save Pike. Uh, again, this it seems like we're just kind of doing bullet points, but this is like within two minutes this all happens. Yeah, so like Spock beats the snot out of them. And then ends up like, you know, oh, I guess I can't be the captain anymore. And then 
Kirk is just like, hey, let's be friends. Like, what is this? Like you say, it's a Saved by the Bell episode, you know? They they have a fight, you know? And then two minutes later, it's like, oh, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to hurt you, and I forgive you. And then they're like best friends again. Again, I don't know that they, they don't really understand the nuance of the Spock-Kirk relationship. Because I feel like when you go back to the original series, when you go to the movies, it's kind of like Kirk is always teasing spock in a way but spock never bites in like that's the relationship i think that spock and mccoy always had a bit of a uh like butting heads relationship but it was almost one-sided in the sense that the doctor really was always on spock's case and spock would just like he would do things that were so subtle and so sly that you'd almost think that he was trying to get his goat but it was hard to tell whether or not he was just being serious this, I think that they just took that and tried to dial it up to 11 and it just doesn't work. It has to be more nuanced in order to have us believe this, right? By the time they make up and they're like, let's work as a team, nobody cares anymore. Everyone's just like, oh, well, this is not the regular characters anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like it, at this point, you're just like rolling your eyes and being like, okay, I guess let's like just keep things moving here. Like, I mean, I guess they they can't hate each other for the rest of the movie or else there's no movie, so... Yeah, and I mean, this is the point of the movie where, uh, not right at this point, there's a point where they get into the uh, turbo lift and they're going to go down to beam over and Uhura runs in for like a goodbye kiss or, or whatever and Spock drops the first name. So he calls yep. her Neota and like they might as well have like looked at the camera and all done like a big wink. Like, do you get it? Do you get it? We looked on Memory Alpha before the movie, <laughs> you know, like... Um, at that point, I, I actually looked at, I was like paused it to see how long was left because I was getting to the point where <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know. I was, it's hard to get through the last 20 minutes to say the least. Doesn't Uhura like have duties to do? Like she just like runs off and jumps in the turbo lift? Yeah, well, it seems like in this in this universe it's kind of like more like when you work from home like you just go at your own pace (laughs) you just do what you want when you want you only wander up to the bridge when you feel like you need to otherwise it's just like in your like quarters in your you know pajamas all day yeah like being down to save the elders you know run run over to the turbo lift for some makeout sesh like whatever whatever you want come as you go okay i didn't realize that uh, they did that in the kelvin universe and so that brings us to the thrilling climax, Matt, as uh, we kind of get to the last 20 minutes here. It can only really be described as a mind-numbing blur. Uh, they get to Earth. That's the next target, we'll call it. They're going to drill into the Earth's core. Of course, they choose to drill right beside Starfleet headquarters in San Francisco. I forgot about this, to be honest with you. I, I felt like... Uh, this whole section is, I, I don't remember seeing it in theaters. Uh, even when I watched it like a couple weeks back, I actually went back and rewatched it recently because it just, this is so fast and it's such a blur. It's hard to kind of understand everything that happens. Uh, so I don't know, where are you feeling in the last 20 minutes here? They're, they're drilling into the earth, Spock and everyone is going to go over and they're going to fight off Nero. Like it's pretty wacky. It's pretty wild. Uh, it's pretty action packed, which, you know, I don't necessarily think you need in Star Trek. Well, it was very fast. Uh, it was like one thing after another after another, and it was there was not a lot of time to really process what all was happening. I actually didn't write much down just because I think things were going so quickly that I didn't really have a chance. 
Uh, one thing that I did right, um, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here, but there's like all those, there's all that fighting going on on, on Nero's ship. I thought it was very interesting that they went with an open concept design for a mining vessel. And they had all those like little platforms that you could, that they were like jumping off of. And it almost felt like if you fell off the platform, you'd like plunge to your death <laughs> on this like massive ship. Like I found that was a very interesting design. Yeah, it's almost like they took it from Star Wars. Maybe. Remember in The Phantom Menace, there was like those like platforms and then there was the one where there was all the little discs they were fighting on so we haven't really talked about ale who is nero's kind of right hand man he's part of the big fist fight so between spock and nero and kirk and ale they have this big fist fight does this do anything for you or are you checked out at this point i also wrote down that um like this kirk really sucks at fighting <laughs> because like except for that bar fight because he like gets now he got beat up in that fight too yeah but like he gets like completely whipped in this uh this whole brouhaha on the on Nero's ship like isn't kirk supposed to be like pretty good at fighting uh well yeah you had like the fight with the gorn the fight with uh khan like there's a lot of great fights throughout the original series yeah exactly even old even old kirk like in generations and stuff was still a decent fighter Oh yeah, like he 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 whipped Doctor Soren pretty good in Generations, even though he was like what sixty. Yeah, so I I don't really maybe this universe Kirk didn't take like any fighting classes. Well, I always feel I feel like a lot of the time Kirk would get in these fights and like he would find ways of of winning the fight without without just throwing punches. Like I remember the Gorn episode, he like fashioned that like primitive good like cannon basically. <laughs> So, but here he just gets totally whooped, and um, I, I don't know, that kind of, I, I didn't really like that. I mean, I guess in the Prime universe, maybe Kirk, like, completed Starfleet training, whereas in this universe he didn't. He only did one year, and then... Maybe. Maybe they do all the, they do all the you know, the good fighting techniques and the, you know, clever workarounds, like in year three, maybe. Yeah, I guess that's possible. The, this leads us to the... They almost wanted to do like a Return of the Jedi thing. We've got the inside fighting and you've got the outside fighting. So uh, Nero follows Spock's jellyfish ship away from the Earth. And then he's going to basically attack it and that's going to ignite all the red matter and it's going to at least destroy Earth or or what have you. Uh, but then the Enterprise shows up and the Enterprise is like blocking the missiles as they're trying to shoot the the jellyfish ship. Um, and I think there's even a point where, like, the jellyfish ship maybe breaks the, the drill. Like, it shoots it and it breaks. And then, eventually, Spock even rams Nero's ship. So, this part is a blur to me, quite literally. So, um, why don't you talk me through this battle? I don't remember much. I remember a lot of, like, laser beams and flashing lights and weird, crazy camera angles. But it was basically just a big, old, classic... <laughs> flashy space battle a brouhaha i don't know I, there there wasn't really anything particularly that stuck out to me in it just a bunch of flashing lights and lens flares i guess to use a very canadian term it was a donnybrook yeah yep that's that's reasonable <laughs> yep <laughs> this is kind of like there's so much going on like i'm almost surprised i didn't just like wake up on the floor pick myself up and be like whoa geez like what what happened there uh because that's kind of how i feel and the next part which 
I, I, I couldn't believe was the case. When I watched it the original time, when I watched it the second time, when I went and rewatched it, I even had to look it up. I had to Google this to make sure uh, because it's just so massively stupid that there's no way that they could have done it. So the red matter gets ignited when the when Nero's ship gets destroyed and the jellyfish ship has got a whole big ball of it. So it creates a giant black hole. The Enterprise starts getting pulled into the black hole and they are trying to warp away. But the black hole has so much gravity, as you know, the reason why it's a black hole is because it is so dense that it will actually suck in light. They can't warp away. So then Scotty, in his infinite genius, decides that he's going to dump the multiple warp cores that the Enterprise has now. Because I, they don't have just one. They've got multiple. How convenient. And as he dumps them, he dumps them behind the Enterprise, shoots them with a photon torpedo, which makes a giant shock wave. And they literally ride the shock wave like a surfer out of the range of the black hole and into safety okay so number one they have multiple warp cores like how many like i think there's like three or four that he dumps oh my goodness that's ridiculous they have one like like what are they like is the kelvin universe like obsessed with redundancy or remember in voyager when they stole voyager's warp core and it was like the biggest thing in the world because they only had that one and if they literally couldn't get it back then they were like screwed or an insurrection when they had to, like, there was that weird, crazy weapon that, like, caused tears in subspace. And the only way to fix it was to fire their warp core at it. And they're like, gee, they better not fire that weapon again. We're fresh out of warp cores. <laughs> well, that's why back in the Kirk era Enterprise, they had multiple warp cores. Oh, okay. Well, I've never heard of that, but okay. And then what do you think about the idea of just dumping the warp core and shooting it and then riding the wave like a shockwave? I don't know. I guess my lack of astrophysics knowledge is throw, showing through here, but I, I don't know. Does that make sense? Uh, I mean, I guess if you don't really know much about Star Trek, you might be able to be like, oh, okay, they can just like blow up their warp core and like go super fast if they ride the wave. Like, I, I mean, I guess you might believe that. But the thing I don't like is, is that when they did the original series, they made sure that they used real physics. So the idea behind the warp core is that if you shrink space in front of yourself and expand it behind you, then basically like you would move faster than light because you would be in a warp bubble. And throughout all of Star Trek, they've always talked about the warp bubble or the warp field, depending on which series you're talking about. And so the thing is, is that a huge explosion wouldn't create a warp bubble or a warp field. And it w definitely wouldn't make you go faster than the speed of light because the explosion itself wouldn't be faster than the speed of light. So this is just another one of those things where they're like, wouldn't it be cool if the Enterprise surfed on like a big explosion? And it would be like so cool if they did that. But none of it makes any sense. And it's so bad that I literally deleted it from my mind. Not once, not twice, but thrice. Wasn't there like some really famous surfing movie that came out around that time? Like maybe they were trying to add that to the mix? Yeah, there was the, <laughs> the, the surfing movie where the girl got her arm bit off, that movie? I don't know. I seem to have a memory of like some really like big budget, big deal surfing movie around this time. But maybe I'm just... I absolutely hate this. And they do this again in uh, the Enterprise War. So this is not the first time or the only time that... 
the uh, Enterprise has gone surfing because in the Enterprise War, they get stuck on like a methane planet and they create a huge explosion behind so that they're like going really fast and then they shoot something that makes a wave so that they can shoot off of the wave and literally like vault into space. It was stupid then. It was stupid here. This is just so asinine that it's almost unbelievable. Like, I don't know how anybody could defend something like this happening in a movie. Yeah, who knew that the Enterprise was really just a giant, like, spacefaring surfboard? <laughs> you can go ride some, ride some shock waves on. Oh, my God. All right, well, let's, <laughs> let's put a big old bow on this turd because I feel like if I talk about this any longer, I might have, like, the vein in my forehead blow. We end the movie. Kirk is now magically the captain. So he has gone from a, like, a cadet. Not even a, a cadet, but a disgraced cadet. And yep. he is now the captain of the best ship that Starfleet has to offer. And if that doesn't make it even worse, Spock then shows up, even though Kirk has jumped above him and a bunch of other people as well. He shows up and goes, hey, man, do you think that I could maybe get a job and be the first officer? And Kirk goes, I'll check your references. And that's how the movie ends. They warp off to another adventure. So talk to me about this scene. What did you think? Are you just so burned out at this point? You just don't care. Oh, yeah. I think Kirk is definitely going to let the guy who is going to, like, shoot him out in the skate pod, maroon him on a frozen, desolate planet full of <laughs> deadly creatures. Be like, oh, yeah, he's just going to forget about that. He'll make me first officer. Like, come on. But also, like, wouldn't you... That is ridiculous. Wouldn't you be kind of upset if you were Spock, if you had just been passed over for captaincy? by like a cadet who didn't even go through the training well there's that part of it too yeah like there isn't somewhere else where spock can go to be the captain i mean this we talked about this in the the uh the first podcast that you know spock was very out of place as far as the progression goes wait who's already a commander like he's already commander and kirk is like a cadet you know when the sort of main part of the movie gets going and you know, Sulu seemed like he was very new. Chekhov seemed like he was very new. So it didn't, like, Spock was just so out of place. And it makes this part at the end, like, even that much less believable. It's like, imagine you're up for a big promotion at your work. Okay? And you're really excited. You think that you're going to get this big promotion. And then I just show up tomorrow. And I have the promotion. Just because I said that I have it. And so I show up. I don't even work there. I, I've never never worked at your company. Uh, nobody knows me. I just show up and I just I basically am like Kramer in that episode where he starts working, <laughs> although he doesn't have the job. <laughs> and I just show up and all of a sudden I'm your boss. And then I go, "Hey Matt, you know what? Maybe you could be my number one." And then we like wink at each other. Wouldn't you be like, "What the hell is this guy doing? Like, how did he beat me for the promotion?" Everyone else you work with would be like, "Who the hell's this?" Like. This guy didn't even go to school for this job. He just showed up and now he's just doing it. It makes no sense. You mean Kirk wasn't part of the uh, command training program? <laughs> yeah, he wasn't in the Tilly command training program. He wasn't even, he didn't even graduate. No, exactly. Oh, anyway, they warp off and we do get, I think, actually kind of a, a nice little nod where uh, Leonard Nimoy reads out, you know, Space, the final frontier. And uh, that's the movie. So um did you like that as a as a finale or not really 
I was glad the movie was over. I don't know if that's what you're asking. Let's dive into the casting characters. First up, of course, James T. Kirk. What did you think of Kirk's storyline? And then what did you think of Chris Pine's portrayal of Captain Kirk? As far as the story goes, pretty outlandish. Kirk, you know, he was sort of an exceptional character in the original timeline, but this is like pushing it way to the extreme. For him to go to like from cadet to captain in like a day is just completely ridiculous and completely outlandish. So um, I thought his storyline was a bit difficult to believe. As far as Chris Pine, uh, I I think there are parts of it that he didn't do well but i think that's due to writing i I, we mentioned earlier or at least i mentioned earlier i found him to be very confrontational which is not really how the original kurt was and i didn't like that i think chris pine in general like i think he plays a pretty decent kirk as far as the sort of cockiness and the the confidence but i thought there were the the confrontational part of it was didn't really sit well with me. I guess the last thing that I would just I'd kind of talk about is just what about the look? Did you think that he looked like uh, William Shatner? Did he look like a young Kirk? Well, I'll take it a bit, maybe take this kind of a little bit higher level. The, the whole group as a whole, when you put them in uniform and just look at them, I, I see all the original characters. I, I don't think, as far as like the look, I think they did pretty well casting-wise. And even like, you know, Anton Yelchin's got the Russian accent. Simon Pegg's got the Scottish accent and so on and so on. Carl Urban, we talked a little bit about how he really had that kind of Southern mannerisms down pat. So, I mean, as far as like the look, when you see them in uniform, yeah, I see all the characters and I thought that they chose good actors as far as the look. Yeah, some of the characterizations and some of the mannerisms were kind of off. Okay, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't have much to add with your with your Kirk. I think that the writing is just atrocious. I think that they didn't really get the essence of what Kirk was. And I think that that Kobayashi Maru thing is probably the best example of how they took something that was an interesting carry, character beat from the Shatner era and just totally crapped on it in this movie Uh, i think that chris pine does a decent impression of it but i always kind of felt like it was a bit more like saturday night live esh you know like it's like he's doing an impression of shatner versus trying to do anything that was kind of in its own way which i guess is hard when you're doing a new character or sorry a same character from a new universe uh next up is uh mr spock or young spock what were your thoughts on the character and what were your thoughts on zachary quinto although you did already kind of talk about it but what did you think of his portrayal well i'll try not to repeat too much um i mean i thought there was a lot of emotional outbursts that were way completely out of character and i i thought that the they didn't really do a good job as far as writing goes of even remotely capturing the essence of spock uh, we I think we kind of talked about Zachary Quinto a little bit when we did our Discovery Season 2 review. I feel like he had this like restrained intensity that I didn't really like. Like I always felt like he was kind of really struggling to keep hold of his emotions when he wasn't like freaking out at people. And um, that doesn't that didn't really strike me as being very Spock like. Yeah, I think that he's probably the worst offender of all the characters in the movie in the sense that he didn't really capture what the essence of Spock is. 
and that's probably mostly writing but even when he is spock at his normal he's a little bit of a jerk you know like i think of that scene in the courtroom where he he makes the quip about the dad that's not very spock like and i guess it is writing but it's there's like a look on his face like he's always like he just stepped in dog do or something all the time like he's just so miserable all the time and that's not really what the spock thing is the spock is more neutral emotionless whereas in this one they tried to make him like he has all the emotions but he's just repressed them and they're just bottled up ready to explode which i didn't like uh next up dr mccoy and uh mccoy is played by carl urban and we did talk a little bit about how he tried to do something a little bit different because i felt like his first introduction he basically did a deforest kelly impression where it was spot on. Like, if you close your eyes, you can't tell the difference between Carl Urban and DeForest Kelly. And then he slowly transitioned into kind of his own thing, which I think was the smartest way to play it. Uh, and I think that a lot of people think that the McCoy character was the one that was done the best. And I have to kind of agree. I would say that this is the one that they, they, they took a syringe, they took out the essence of what we knew, and put it into a new body and uh with that we get carl urban's dr mccoy well i think it's pretty spot on i mean i thought he was probably the best and stayed the most true to the uh the original character the only thing that kind of and i get why they did it was when he injected kirk with that like disease that had the hilarious side effects like i mean that was kind of like just a cheap laugh but i understand like why they did it plot wise but yeah, I thought Carl Urban was really good. Um, I thought he had sort of the mannerisms down. I thought he had sort of the attitude of, uh, you know, sort of this disgruntled kind of guy who sort of, he does his job, but he doesn't always like it. I, I thought he had that down pat. Yeah, he did a really great job. The only thing I guess I don't really love is that, and we already talked about it, but um, he's already a doctor and essentially he's just joining Starfleet to get the space part of it which i like because mccoy was always somebody he never really liked space travel he never really liked getting these wacky adventures he's always kind of begrudging but it just doesn't really fit with his age maybe because he's like so much older than everybody and so i guess would he maybe like be able to skip ranks quickly because of his doctorate or because of like past experience that part of it i guess just again we are to take and run with uh now the next character is a very interesting one because I mean, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Uhura was always just a, a side character in the original series. They started to give her a little bit more once we got to the later movies, but uh, she's a support character, 100%. In this one, I think that they made an effort to change her more than the others. Like, she's kind of got the big ponytail. Uh, her role is very important. She's in a relationship with Spock, and that part's an eye roll. But regardless, I think that they gave her a much bigger, much more important role in this as kind of the lead female, as it were. And then, in a weird way, she does a good job of capturing Uhura, but much more boldly. What are your thoughts on Uhura as a character, and then uh, Zoe Saldana as Uhura in terms of her performance? Well, I, I think that her character had the most drastic changes, and I think that it was actually a good thing that they did that. In the original series, Uhura was very much just like the switchboard operator, and that was really it. There's really not much personality, 
And I mean, that's a product of the times. You know, women were very much seen as as that in the 60s. And I think for them to kind of reboot the character and make her a little bit more, a little bit more bold, a little bit more, you know, sassy, a little bit more have a bit of an attitude kind of thing. I actually thought that I actually really liked the way that they kind of reapproached Uhura and gave her a more 2009 uh, role on the ship versus just, you know, someone who answers the phone. And I thought Zoe Saldana was a very convincing Uhura. And I think that she did a, a pretty good job of of uh, showing these sort of the sort of like, I guess, reimagined uh, Uhura character. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, you can't really make a movie in 2009 with no female characters or, you know, all the female characters hanging around in the background. That would not go over very well. And this is probably the character that's the most different, but they did a really good job, actually. And she did a really good job in making it still feel like the characters. I can't say that for Montgomery Scott. Um, I like Simon Pegg, and I think that, like, his comedy stuff is top tier, uh, but this is just awful. Um, this was probably the character that I, I, I mean, I think they they borderline ruined this. They just completely went in a different direction. They did it a lot more for laughs, a lot more for goofs. And for me, it just doesn't work. I don't think it's a good portrayal. I don't think that he really looks like the Montgomery Scott that we know and that we love. Well, yeah, he was basically the court jester. Uh, when he finally made it into the movie, which was like an hour and 20 minutes in, I, I do enjoy Simon Pegg, and he is a pretty funny actor, but like to, to take Scotty, who's this brilliant engineer, and just basically reduce him to just a, you know, comic relief, like I, I really did not like that at all. Sulu and Chekhov are two that I always kind of feel like are Bert and Ernie, you know, probably because they both work on the con. What were your thoughts on Sulu and Chekhov, uh, which were played by John Cho and Ant Yelchin? I think they did a good job with the look here. This definitely fits with what you were saying where they have that essence, the look, the feel definitely is there. Uh, but what did you think of the characters and their portrayals? Sulu, we got virtually nothing. I mean, we know that he can sword fight. That's about it. And that he, like, forgot the parking brake, which I, I didn't like that just because it made him look a complete and utter fool. Chekhov, I don't know what they were doing here. Like, whether they wanted to go, like, Wesley Crusher with him and make him this, like, child genius. I just felt like he... They, I think they just went too far with that because... I think what they were trying to do is they were trying to get away from that like portrayal of Chekhov. Like when he first comes on the original series, it's like he's this brand new, he's right out of the academy, doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't have any experience. And I think what they did was they like flipped it completely the other way. And I don't really know if that was really what the way they should have gone with Chekhov. Now, what do you think with the performance, though? Anton Yelchin. It was decent. I was kind of getting sick of him yelling, I can do this, I can do this! Like, by the end of the movie, I was like, okay, we get it, you're a genius, you can do anything. Like, <laughs> enough already. My thoughts on Sulu and Chekhov are, are pretty much the same. I mirror most of what you said. I think that they, they tried to just cram in as many original series-isms as they could. The Sulu check fight, I can do it. Like that was probably a line from a, a one episode or something. They they probably gave them enough. I think that one of the things about the movie that really hurts it is that the main villain, which is uh, Nero, played by Eric Bana, is just not really a good foil to, to bounce up against. 
So this is really the only new character that we're going to talk about. He is really the whole hinge of the movie, right? Because he's the only character that they made completely special and new for this particular story. And I don't know that it works. I think that he, they they tried to make something happen here in terms of he's evil and he's bad and he's going to blow your planet up. But it's, it's very much just the same rehash as uh, Nemesis, really. The big ship is, is way too powerful. You know, he's going to get you. He sleeps on a metal bed for some reason because he's so evil. Yeah, I didn't like uh, Nero at all. What were your thoughts? Well, I think at one point I wrote down he's like the most inarticulate villain I've ever seen. Like he just, he's always yelling and grunting. And like whenever he speaks, he's always just like, you know, yelling and speaking in like, you know, sort of short bursts. Like it. I really was unimpressed with him at all. It's like they tried to make him just so badass and such an evil guy. And it's like, it just came off completely flat. I guess. Yeah. And like the worst of it too, is, is like, if you think about Star Trek, uh, discovery season two, like this is their definition of a bad guy, like a bald guy who wears all black and he's like always yelling. And, uh, you know, he, he's always like, scowling into the camera like this is their only real go-to when it comes to evil guys you know like they did it in nemesis they did it here uh they did it in uh discovery season two like this is like a very i don't know prototypical bad guy but it doesn't work and i definitely don't feel like nero is very sympathetic if they had maybe established that like his family had been killed then maybe we'd be like oh okay well i understand the vengeance but they don't even mention that they just well they do mention it they don't show it yeah, exactly. It was like you don't feel for him at all. You just think he's just this, he he almost comes off as just this like dumb Romulan guy who, you know, hell bent on getting revenge. And then last but certainly not least, probably the one draw for people like you and I uh in terms of uh why we'd want to go and pay money to see this movie or why we'd sit down and watch this movie in the future, uh that is Leonard Nimoy as Prime Spock. What are your thoughts here? I think uh, I can sum it up with that one note I wrote where I wrote uh, that, you know, Nimoy was really good, even though the lines were terrible. He he played Prime Spock, as he always does, you know, pretty well, very well. Um, but some of the lines and some of the writing was a little bit suspect. I agree, 100%. I think that it's nice to see him. And sadly, I believe that he only makes a very brief cameo in uh, the next one. So, I mean, this is really the last time we see him in uh, a full role. But it's just so bad writing. Like, it's... I don't want to say it's a black mark on the Spock character, but it is somewhat sad that this is the last thing that we see him in because I kind of thought that unification was, like, a nice way to send him off. Like, just knowing that he was going to live out his days, like, working on getting the Vulcans and the Romulans to, to join up. Uh, or whatever books you want to read or what have you. But I don't know. This is kind of like a lame way to go off, isn't it? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dig into some deleted scenes. Uh, so the first deleted scene is a scene that would show Spock's birth shortly after we see Kirk's birth uh, and a very brief conversation between Amanda and Sarek just talking about how he'll be the son of kind of two worlds and, you know, it's going to be difficult for him. Didn't we see this in Star Trek V already? Uh, maybe that's why it was cut, but I guess what does it really add as well? Exactly. Yeah, we we don't need to see, we don't need to see it again. 
So I guess, are you glad they cut that? Yes. Okay, I'm. me too. Uh, all right, the second scene is a scene where uh, Jim Kirk is living with his older brother, George. Winona Kirk is their mother, and she is away, like, at the store or something. They're washing that Corvette from the beginning, which used to be his father's Corvette. He pulls down the visor, and the keys fall out, and that's where he gets the idea to steal it. <laughs> Matt, his eyes, Matt just strained his, uh, his retinal muscles here because they are rolling really hard. Anything more to do with that Corvette is just a complete waste of time. <laughs> that whole scene was just so stupid. We don't need more. Uh, all right. There was also a entire subplot where Nero is captured and tortured by Klingons who are suffering from um, the Augment virus, which is why they look different in uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, anyway, uh, they also use like that earworm torturing device on him, and basically they show that he's been going through and making this big plan for like 20 some odd years and then they eventually escape and that would that whole thing is cut from the movie do you think that that would make him more sympathetic or add more to it would you like to see the klingons yeah i've read about this whole thing with the klingons that they ended up cutting out i don't i don't know really how much it would have added nero is a pretty ham-fisted villain I don't really know that adding a Klingon torture scene would have made it any worse or any better. And then the last scene, which may be the dumbest of them all, is that they cut a scene where old Spock, uh, shortly after he was just in the shuttle bay, he walks past young Sarek and Sarek does like the what, 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 what? Double take at seeing old Spock walk by. Are you glad they cut that? That's just silliness. Like, why would he be doing a double take of some elderly Vulcan that he probably would not recognize? Yeah, I have to agree. I'm glad they cut all of these scenes. And even though it's not my most favorite movie, these scenes would have probably made it just that little bit worse. What is your favorite scene or your most memorable quote? Or what is the one thing that you would say that you like about this movie? I like the last line. That was pretty, pretty good. Okay, yeah from spock i mean that and that it was also the last line of the movie so. yeah you know what i uh, that is definitely a good one i really do like that line that uh pike says where he goes your father was captain for 12 minutes he saved 800 lives including yours that's a great line you know what this might be the only time you ever watch this movie again in your whole life so why don't you give me a final synopsis give me your final review and a score out of five balls of red matter well i think to sum it up i mean it was you know, it was very flashy, but I felt like it, the story was weak and kind of simplistic. It didn't really have a lot of substance. Um, the characters were okay, but there were some pretty major deviations from what we already know. Um, I mean, some of it looked like it was lifted directly from like Star Wars Episode One. You know, if you want to turn your brain off and just sort of be dazzled and and not really think much, it's it's okay, but uh, it's it's not a great movie and uh i'm gonna give it uh one ball of red matter out of five um this is like you know pretty pretty bad yeah i i think the same thing uh this is a star trek movie for non-star trek fans so basically if you're a big fan of star trek don't watch this because it's just aggravating there's so many dumb things they take such big craps all over all your favorite characters they don't believe in the mythos or they twist it or change it and i feel like it's just not very good at all 
Uh, it spoils a lot of it for me personally. And yeah, I can't see myself ever watching it again. I really contemplated giving this movie a 0 out of 5 rating. But then I had a nightmare about Star Trek Into Darkness. And in that nightmare, I realized <laughs> that there's actually something worse than this movie. So I'm going to uh, mirror your thoughts and I'm going to give it 1 out of 5 balls of red matter. All right, folks, there is the dreaded red alert siren, which means that it is time to pull a fresh episode for Matt. And of course, that will be the first episode of season three. Uh, it's hard to believe that we are already into our third season here on RTR. And of course, don't miss Friday, August the 21st. We'll be having our big special season two retrospective and trivia bonanza. And then, yeah, we're going to hop right back into it with season three. So, Matt, what are you hoping for to start off with? Well, it's pretty amazing that we're already into our third year. It's hard to believe, but, uh, you know, you know what they say? Time flies when you're having fun. And um, I'm hoping to start off with a really uh, solid episode, having uh, just spent the last two podcasts uh discussing star trek 09 all right well i will reach into the director's cap of episodes uh to start us off and wow how how fitting that we actually draw a season premiere for the season premiere of rtr uh it is from our favorite bajoran space station deep space nine it is Season 6, Episode 1, A Time to Stand. Uh, and Matt, are you ready to go? Yep, I believe I am ready to go. Matt is going to have 60 seconds in order to uh, tell me as much as he can remember. Your time starts now. Alright, this is the beginning of the Dominion War. Uh, the Cisco has this mission where he has to go, I believe it was a uh, like Ketracel White facility and and admiral ross sends him on this mission and the crew to go blow it up and they end up using i think it's like a stolen jemhadar ship uh from a previous episode and they fly to this uh you know ketracel white facility to blow it up and uh they they manage to succeed but they you know escape by the skin of their teeth and they end up uh, like basically adrift because they didn't quite make it out of the explosion in time and the episode ends with them just sort of like drifting through space their warp drive is like completely fried and um mr garrick is uh in this episode he helps them out a lot you know weaseling through uh cardassian patrols and whatnot and um and you're out of time yeah, you did pretty well there, my friend. Um, this is a very exciting time in Deep Space Nine, isn't it? Because this is basically the jump off or, uh, you know, I think it kind of was hinted at on the season five finale. But this is where it jumps off. And this is a great place for us to start season three of Random Trek Review. So uh, until two weeks time, uh, this is Andrew signing off from RTR. Matt, any words of wisdom as before we go? No, none. No words of wisdom. <laughs> All right, we will see you guys in two weeks. And don't forget that birthday episode, August the 21st, which is a Friday. But, you know, you have to celebrate your birthday on the actual day, right? That's right. Yep. Bye, everybody. We'll talk to you then.